Welcome to the Knox Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We hope this resource is a blessing to you. Let's jump in. Today's reading is going to be from Exodus 19, verses 1 through 8. On the third new moon after the Israelites had gone out to the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They journeyed from Rephidim, they journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in, the, in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses went, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one, everything that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Gwen. You got a, got a big Bible word in there. You got it. Nailed it. Well, good morning, friends, and welcome uh, to, we are now in week five of Long Story Short. Glad to have you with us in the journey, and let me say it's never too late. I think it's like 13, 14 weeks we have laid out, so we're not even halfway there. If you haven't started, jump on in. The water's fine. But as I was thinking about what we're going to talk about today, um, I started thinking about our kids. And as most of you know, uh, we have three kids, uh, Eleanor, who's 11, Ben, who's seven, and Margaret, we call her Meg, she is four. And again, as most of you know, all children, uh, dear, love, beloved children, they all have, uh, at their different ages and stages of life, there are some, for lack of a better term, pros and cons, right? Some things that make them delightful and wonderful and things that make them not that. And, uh, you know, so start when they're born, right? Their babies are born cute, and God made them so very cute on purpose because they're also challenging, right? You, there's not, you can't take a break from caring for an infant. They require everything of you. You have to do everything for them. They can't do anything for themselves. So, you know, pro con, cute, helpless. Uh, they grow older. <laughs> And they start to develop some skills, some abilities to do some things on their own. So there's some measure of relief there. It's not 24 hours a day every second of that day. But as they develop those skills and abilities, the relief that you feel dissipates because they begin very quickly to expect and sometimes demand full and complete autonomy. Right? They can do this much, but they want you to let them do this much. They want to do things by themselves. Typically, this happens when kids are three or four years old. Maybe I'm thinking about this more because we have one of those right now, uh, who is very strong-willed, but they all have been. It's not just Meg, it's all of them. I, I, they know very clearly, at least my kids have, and communicated very clearly what they do and do not want. And what they do not want, most of all, is for us to do anything for them or to tell them what they are supposed to do. 
So uh, I've thought about some of the phrases that my kids at three and four years old have uh, really used and uh, seem to appreciate the most in their own vocabulary as it's developed. Uh, phrases like, no. <laughs> it's a real high, high on the list of favorite phrases in three and four year olds. Other ones are, uh, you're not the boss. You don't get to tell me what to do. Uh, my favorite, this was Ben, he would often say, you're not the rules. Like, you, as an individual, are not the rules. Well, true, but also not true. I am the boss of me. I can do whatever I want. And let me repeat the favorite, which was just, no. It's a lot of fun. I think I speak for all preschool parents when I paraphrase the old Rodney Dangerfield joke. You know this one? He would, you, know, you could say, take my preschooler, please. It was a bad joke then, it's a bad joke now, but it's still sometimes how we feel. We do love our children. We do want, most days, to keep our children. Because the reality is, even if we traded them in for another model, we'd get the very same thing. We get the very same thing because our children's pursuit of, of autonomy and self-direction and freedom is not unique to them. Every human being who has ever lived has wanted to be free. Problem is, as a general rule of humanity, we're not very good at it. We're not, we're not very good at being free. I want to just help you get your mind around this. Imagine a few scenarios with me. Imagine that you're driving and a squad car pulls up behind you and the officer walks up to the window and tells you that you've been speeding and you say, you know, thing is, I just don't feel like going 65 miles an hour. <laughs> when I drive, I, I need to be guided by my deep inner voice and my deep inner voice tells me that today you can go 90. <laughs> you should go 90. So officer, don't try to impose your rules on me. When I'm driving, I have to be free. We have some, some names for people who might behave that way. We would call them speeders. We might call them lawbreakers. Some might call them Presbyterian pastors. I don't know. Call what you, you name how you want. Or imagine an IRS agent knocks on your door and uh, is there because they notice that, that the government has, has discovered that you have not paid your taxes for the last 10 years. Indignant, you respond, I understand that paying taxes may work for some people, but not for me. It would just feel too hypocritical, you know? I, if I'm going to give some of my money to the government, it would not reflect my deepest passions and values. So don't impose your rules on my money. I have to be free. Again, we have a name for people like this. We would call them tax evaders. Or finally, imagine a man is on a date with a woman as they enjoy a nice romantic meal. Perhaps on Valentine's Day, he leans in close and says, you know, being faithful to just one woman would be too confining. 
I've grown to be in touch with my core inner self. And when my core inner self sees a beautiful woman walk by, I, I just have to stare at her. And, and everything in me wants to chase after her and just see if I can get her to respond. We also have a name for these people, but it is not church appropriate. <laughs> so I'll let you leave it to your imaginations. The human soul cries out to be free, and the common perception is that to be free means to be totally uh, unhinged from any rules, any kind of regulations, any limitations. All of those stand in the way of our freedom. That's what we think. And to be fair, Christianity and the Bible have gotten a pretty bad rap about being particularly restrictive in our application of these rules and regulations. We're not really good at this whole freedom thing either. Author Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace uh, about his own not very positive experience growing up in a church that was quite legalistic. And so in it, he writes, I came out of a Southern fundamentalist culture that frowned upon co-ed swimming, wearing shorts, wearing jewelry or makeup, dancing, bowling, and reading the Sunday newspaper. Alcohol was a sin of a different order with the sulfurous stench of hellfire about it. No short skirts for women, no longer hair for men, no polka dots on dresses for women because they might draw attention to suggestive body parts. No kissing, no holding hands, no rock music, no facial hair. It all comes to mind the dog who thought his name was No because that's the only word he ever heard from his master. Well, today, as we round out week five of Long Story Short, we find ourselves in Exodus 19 and 20, the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. And to catch us up, last week, Moses and the people of Israel were set free from slavery in Egypt. They saw God work wonders through the plagues, the Passover, and that final defining moment of the parting of the Red Sea. Now, since then, three months have passed. Three months since the people were set free from slavery. They had been slaves for hundreds of years. Slavery was all that they had ever known, and now they were free, or so they thought. The people had been taken out of Egypt, but God knew it was going to take a fair bit more time to get Egypt out of them. They needed to learn what it meant to be truly free. So that's what God set out to teach them. And that's what God wants to teach us as well. For though we think we are all free, the reality is that none of us are quite as free as we would like to believe. I'm going to just give you one example. I think we can all generally agree that all individuals over the age of 21 are free to drink as much alcohol as you want, right? But there are some laws that restrain uh, drinking and driving or public drunkenness, but you know, if you want to get loaded every night in the privacy of your own home, you're free to do so. We all agree on this, right? Here's where things get complicated. Eventually, your drinking may begin to cause problems for you. It can damage your health. 
It can hurt your marriage. It can embarrass your kids. It can threaten your job. You may get to a point where you want to quit, but you can't. You discover that you are not free to enjoy sobriety. You're free to drink as much as you want, but you're not free not to drink. You tracking with me on this? Whether it's in relation to alcohol or something else, I don't mean to pick on drinking exclusively, but the reality is all of us have this brokenness inside of us that keeps us from being as free as we would like to be. So yeah, you want to start drink, stop drinking, but you can't. Or you want to have a close and intimate relationship with your spouse, but those pictures and videos that are very easy to find on your phone or computer just make it hard to really do so. You want to live with a happy, cheerful, optimistic attitude, and every day you say you're going to, but then, yeah, I don't know, get to 9, 10 a.m., and you can't. You want to quit yelling at your kids, but you don't. You want to be the kind of person who manages your anger really, really well, but you're not. You'd like to think that you've become unselfish, but you haven't. You and I, we're we're just not all that free. And friends, God's intention, God's eternal intention for his children is that we would be, that we would be free. However, God's path to freedom looks different than what you and I might expect. The great irony about real and true and lasting soul freedom, the the kind of freedom that you and I crave, the, the kind of freedom that you and I long for, the kind of freedom that you and I were created for, For your soul to be truly free, you must surrender. If you want to free your soul, you have to acknowledge that there is a spiritual order that God designed for you. You are not the center of the universe. You are not the master of your fate, the captain of your ship. There is a God and you are not him. So true freedom comes when you embrace God's overall design for the world and find your surrendered place in it. And that overall design is revealed in part in these Ten Commandments. The giving of these Ten Commandments is recorded in Exodus 20. As Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, we're told that the people of Israel stood at the foot of the mountain. And so to this day, in Judaism, the people will stand for the reading of the Ten Commandments. So I'm actually going to ask us to join with our Jewish brothers and sisters in that tradition. Everyone who is able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the Word of our Lord. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, 
but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your town. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female slave, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as we think about this law that God gives, this law that is meant to set us free, I want us to consider two things, two questions. First, what is its purpose? What is the purpose of these Ten Commandments? And then second, who gives it? Who is the one who gives these commands? So let's take those each in turn. First, what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? What are they? And what do they do? And first, before we get into answering that specific question, I want us to be very clear on what they are not, what they do not do. And the first thing that the Ten Commandments are not is they are not guidelines. I was a big fan when it first came out of the the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Remember these, the Johnny Depp ones? It's the first one that's really good. Then they kept making new, other one, eh. But the first one, I still stand by, it's gold. And in that movie, uh, the, the protagonist female gets captured by the pirates, and she has a secret that they're trying to get her to, to tell them, and she is, you know, reticent to do so. So they tell her, they say, there's a code. There's a pirate's code that if you tell me this secret, I won't kill you. So she chooses to trust the pirate, and she tells them the secret. And the moment that she does, they say, all right, great, walk the plank. She's out. She says, wait, wait, what about the, the pirate code? And they said, oh, well, it's really just guidelines. It's the way a lot of people think about the Ten Commandments, is guidelines. You know, that's a, it's a standard for the day, but when the day changes, maybe our guidelines should change too. But the Ten Commandments, they are not guidelines. They are, they are also not multiple choice. Right? We don't get to pick and choose the ones we feel like following and the ones we don't. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, the Ten Commandments are also not the gateway to God. Right, as, as if, as, if a, a person who existed who could perfectly follow every one of the commandments exactly to the letter of law, the law, if that person were to exist and succeed in that endeavor, it's not that it's like they would be closer to or more loved by God than the person who couldn't, who was the rest of us. 
right? They're, they're not there for us to try to attain and achieve perfectly to get us closer to God. So they're not guidelines. They're not a gateway to God. So what are they and what is their purpose? Well, for me, the image that works really well to help me understand the purpose of the Ten Commandments is that of a guardrail. A guardrail. And what a guardrail does, at least does, are two things. It protects and it directs. A guardrail protects. Several summers ago, my family had the, the, the treat of getting to travel together to the um, uh, Glacier National Park in Montana. Anybody ever been there? So it, it, it has, I don't know if people in Illinois are familiar with this, it has mountains, those things that are very, very high in the sky, and it, it has on those particular mountains, they have carved into it uh, what they call the going to the sun road. You can literally drive up and across this whole mountain range, but and it's incredible, it's beautiful, and it's terrifying. I was thinking about it even this morning and remembering I was so grateful that my sister was the one driving because I, I, I do have a fear of heights and there were times as we were driving you can look out your window and the only thing between you and falling down this absolutely sheer cliff is that guardrail. And I was so glad that it was there. <laughs> that guardrail was there to protect, to keep us from falling over the edge of that cliff. That's God's law. It's a guardrail, it's there to protect. In the same way that you would protect someone you love by saying, hey, don't touch the hot stove or don't run out into busy traffic, the Ten Commandments protect us from entering into behaviors and relationships and, and habits and circumstances that will inevitably hurt us. A guardrail protects. It also directs. It keeps you on the road. It keeps you moving in the direction that you are supposed to go. Ten Commandments are given by God to direct us into becoming a certain kind of person. A person that doesn't lie. A person that doesn't steal. A person that doesn't covet. A person who is content. I was having a, a conversation with uh, a, a guy who's part of our church now, a Wheaton professor, um, in, in between the services, and, and he helped me, I didn't ever think about this too, he helped think, what if you, next time you read the Ten Commandments, do this, read them in the positive rather than the negative. You know, instead of it saying, don't commit adultery, how would you put that in the positive? What way is that trying to shape you into a person who can flourish, right? Engage in your marriage. Honor your marriage. Love the person that you're married to. That's so much more beautiful and just, and, and sounds actually more freeing and a, a life I want to live into than just don't commit adultery. So just take that as your, your challenge, your encouragement this week. Read them again and see how you'd rephrase them, not in the negative, but in the positive. That's what they're there for. They're there to direct you into becoming a, the kind of person that God created you to be. Ten Commandments also direct us not only to become the kind of people God wants us to be, but they're there to direct us to God himself, to understand more of who God is, to enter into relationship with the God who is. 
they show us what God's like. Right? In any human relationship with any person, as you're getting to know them, one of the things that, that helps you get to know them is you begin to understand the things that they value. As you understand what a person values, you know more of what they're like. And so these Ten Commandments show us what God values. So you remember at this time, the people of Israel, they did not know God very well. Right? They, they knew hundreds of years before that there was this God who called and, and promised and blessed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then 400 years of slavery in Egypt go by. And here comes Moses and says, remember that God from 400 years ago? He's here, he has a different name, and he's here to set you free. That's pretty much the extent of what they know. And God makes good on that promise. God does set them free powerfully with, with, as we said, with the plagues and the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea. So all this has happened, and they go, okay, there's this God. He's got this name. He's made this promise 400 years ago, and gosh, he seems really powerful. He's certainly more powerful than all these Egyptian gods because he won and they didn't. So that's all they got. So God gives them these Ten Commandments in part to direct them to him, to direct them to understand who he is and what he values. To reveal that he is a God who is good. To reveal that he is a God who is compassionate. To reveal that he is a God who is just. To reveal that he is a God of love. In the giving of these Ten Commandments, God reveals that he wants to form this community of people. That's what he's been working on since Abraham's time up until now, to form a people, but a particular kind of people, a people who live out an ethic of love, loving God and loving people. That's what it boils down to. That's what Jesus said, right? Jesus said the greatest two commandments are just this, love God. God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We think, ah, Jesus, you nailed it, right? How did he come up with that? He didn't. In giving of those two commands, Jesus is paraphrasing, restating, summarize these 10 commands. If you look at them side by side here, the scholars tell us these first four all have to do with how we love God. You have no other gods before me. Don't make an idol. Don't make wrongful use of the name. Remember the Sabbath. That's all how we love God. You want to love your neighbor well? Try these six. You could do a far worse job loving your neighbor than putting those six commandments into practice. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is to protect and direct to protect us from harm and to direct us to the powerful, good God of absolute, unconditional, unending love. So that leads pretty quickly to the second question. Say, if that's the purpose of the Ten Commandments, who is the God who gave them? And God tells us, and it's interesting, it's before he utters a single word of direction to the people, God starts out in this way, in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God. I am 
the Lord. Dave mentioned this in his class on Wednesday. If in your English version of your Bible, whenever you see the Lord in all caps, that's this name of God that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. The Lord, Adonai, Yahweh. Often it's translated as simply, I am. I am the God who was. I am the God who is. I am the God who always will be in every moment, in every place. Like we said last week, I am is the God who is as close to our hearts and as essential to life as our very breath. I am the Lord, your God. Fascinating here that in this particular passage that your in the Hebrew is singular. Whole lot of other places in the Bible when you see the word your, it's plural, it's y'all. This one is your God. And of course, yes, God is speaking to all the people of Israel gathered, but he wants them to hear, I am your God, I am your God, I am your God, I am your God. I am the Lord, your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. People of Israel are starting to get a flavor for who this God is. It's not a God like all the other gods of all the other cultures around them who remained distant and aloof and apart and could not be bothered with the circumstances and situations and the suffering of the people on earth. Not this God. This is a God who gets involved. This is a God who gets his hands dirty. This is a God who knows and cares about the suffering of his people in bondage. He is the God who came all the way down to free his people from slavery to Pharaoh. This is our God. He is not a distant, aloof, authoritarian deity. Rather, he is the God who comes all the way down to us, we now know, in Jesus Christ. He is the one who comes all the way down to us in Jesus Christ to free us from slavery, from our own slavery to sin and to death. He doesn't start out by saying, listen, 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 here's all the list of all the things you need to do to get me to love you. He says, no, 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 I am the Lord your God who loves you, who has freed you, who has bought you with a price, the God who sets you free. The human soul cries out to be free. But it is only when we surrender to God and his ways that we experience true and lasting freedom. We may stumble along the way. We will stumble along the way. As we continue in this long story short journey, that's what we're going to see over and over again. The people of Israel, they can't get it right and neither can we. But the bigger story is that we serve a God who is perfect. A God who is patient. A God is always more ready to forgive than we are to ask. And a God who step by step, moment by moment, makes us free. I'll close with this. The great evangelist Billy Graham was married to a woman named Ruth. They were married from 1943 until she passed away in 2007. And and Ruth 
though she probably stood much in the shadow of her husband, Billy Graham, she was a remarkable woman in her own right. But when she died, she chose to have engraved on her headstone words that spoke nothing of her many and varied achievements. It's an idea that she got many years earlier. She was driving at a time in her life, probably through Chicago, through a construction zone. And, you know, like we have seen, there were all these signs and detours and machinery and, and equipment, and they finally came to the last sign. And that sign said, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. So that's what she put on her gravestone. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. Construction today. Freedom tomorrow. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information on how to get connected, please visit our website at knoxprez.org. That is K-N-O-X-P-R-E-S dot org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcast, or Spotify. <laughs>